You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic, but today work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride purpose they stitch people together if all that sounds good to you visit american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use code staple 20 at checkout that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com with promo code staple 20 when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over 600 each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply it's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to go, it's a long way to Tipperary, to the sweetest girl I know, goodbye Piccadilly. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 167. This episode I would like to thank everyone who follows the podcast on Twitter. I try to post interesting things on Twitter from time to time, so if you want to see things that I find interesting, check it out at twitter.com slash historygreatwar. This is it. The start of the last big series of episodes before we arrive at the Armistice on November 11th, 1918. Over the next nine or so episodes, we will see the German offensives come to an end, the Allied counterstroke on the Marne, and then the general attack that would take the Allies all the way to November. During this period, often called the 100 Days, the Western Front would blow right open, with the Allies attacking from Verdun to the sea and the Germans frantically trying to fend them off. There would be huge casualties on all sides during this period, with hundreds of thousands of Germans also taken prisoner, but for the first time in four years, the Entente troops, now joined by the Americans, would achieve real and obvious victories on the Western Front. Our story today starts before the Second Battle of the Marne, which we will then cover, and the next episode we will move our focus to the first large planned Allied offensive of 1918 at Amiens. Then we will st spend a few episodes focusing on the American efforts at Sammy Hill and then with the Meuse-Argonne offensive. Then finally, we will close out the series by looking at the general offensive that would be launched all along the front, which will take us all the way to the armistice. Today we focus on the Marne, where French, American, British, and even a few Italian troops would stop the Germans in front of Paris and then begin the process of driving them back. While the German attacks had been quite successful, they had not won the war, now it was time for the Allies to hit back, and they would hit back very hard. 
But before we dive into that, we are going to take a look at two different items that are sort of side stories. The first will be the Battle of Hamel, and then a quick check-in on the Americans and what they were doing back at home to try and increase their contribution to the war effort. The story of the Battle of Hamel revolves around one man, General John Monash. Monash had entered the war as the commander of one of Australia's first combat brigades, and like so many other Australians, he would be present at Gallipoli. His brigade would be on the Gallipoli beaches on the very first day, and all the way until the very end. Monash would then take part in the Battle of Messine Ridge, and later the assault on Passchendaele in late 1917. After Passchendaele, he would find himself in command of the Australian Corps, and he would still be in that position until the Battle of Hamel had occurred. Monash gets extremely high marks from a lot of historians for his leadership and his strategic abilities. Liddell Hart would say that Monash, quote, had probably the greatest capacity of command in modern war among all who held command, end quote, which is probably the highest marks you can possibly receive as a military leader. I'm not going to go into great detail about the Battle of Hamel itself. In reality, it was a pretty small effort over a piece of ground that was only marginally important. It was successful, though, with the Australians taking all of the objectives in just an hour and a half, which was pretty good, but not totally unheard of. What makes Hamel special is really the position that it occupies in the wider narrative of the war. It is often referenced as the point where the entire learning process that the British had been going through for the entire war really starts to pay off, and all the lessons that they had learned really come together, and everything just sort of clicked. New Mark V tanks, with better armor speed and endurance, were available and they were used well. They were then combined with infantry and artillery tactics that really complemented the armored vehicles and aircraft to produce a true combined arms operation. Hamel is often called the first truly modern battle for this reason. The Australians were so successful that information about the battle would be printed out and distributed to every British officer, and it would be the model for future efforts. It was a well-planned and executed attack, but it did not completely revolutionize warfare. Instead, it was just the final iteration of the British formula that they had been working on since at least 1916 or even earlier. And it was one that could work quite well. Monash was just able to take all of the puzzle pieces and figure out the best way to put them together. While so much was happening in Europe during the middle of 1918, the war was finally coming home to America in ways that had not been felt before. With the Entente screaming for more troops and it looking like the war was going to stretch into 1919, there were more and more urgent registration drives across the country. The second registration drive required every male that had turned 21 during 1918 to register, while the third required all males between 18 and 45 to do the same. This drive was then combined with compulsory registration for the draft, which still occurs to this day, with the added process of training for all male graduating high school students. This would greatly increase the number of men that would be available to the American army over the next 12 to 18 months. On the political level, Congress was still working very closely with Wilson, and the passage of the Sedition Acts, which we briefly discussed last year, expanded on the powers that had been given to the government in the Espionage Acts. The Sedition Acts were once again containing quite broad language that could be used in just about any situation. There was also growing disquiet throughout the agricultural areas of the country and the price controls that had been put in place on several different items. 
This was bad enough for the farmers who could have gotten many times the amount of money that they were receiving had they been able to sell their goods on the open market. But the government restrictions were limited to just a few industries, which meant that the price of some goods required to grow the food in the first place, like fertilizer, were not controlled, which made it very difficult to turn a profit. All of these changes were being felt in America, the allied country that would be least affected by the war. I bring this up now because there was an important undercurrent in late 1918, um, that would, and that was the growing war weariness among all of the nations. It would not be felt by the Allies in the same way, and certainly not to the level that was experienced by Germans and Austrians, who were basically without food. But it was there, and it would influence the course of events during the year. It would also cause some catastrophic changes to world power structures after the war was over. During the last two weeks of June, the Germans were preparing for their Freedom Storm attack, and this gave the French and British a chance to catch their breath. This break also gave Foch time to sort out the situation, and by the time that the Germans did attack, the front was in a very different position than it had been in the previous months. Even though Foch was optimistic about the situation, the other army commanders were not. Haig, whose army has been in constant combat since March 21st, believed his army was too disorganized. Patan believed his was too exhausted. It was only in Pershing that Foch found somebody of similar mind, but Pershing was concerned that his troops may not be completely ready to take on a large-scale offensive. Something that is important to note is that, even though Foch was optimistic about the situation, he did not believe that the French could win the war in 1918. Foch, and along with almost every other Allied commander, believed that the final campaign of the war would take place in 1919. This would be one of the few times that the Allied commanders would overestimate instead of underestimate the strength of the Germans, but it's an important fact to keep in mind when we go through all of the events that are about to occur. Even almost to the very end, like we're talking mid-October, the French, British, and Americans did not think the war was going to end in 1918, and the fact that it did was a surprise. Now, back to June here. While he did not have the support of all of the army leaders, Foch began to lay the groundwork for future attacks, and these preparations began as far back as May 1918. During that time, he assigned staff officers to begin to study and plan for future actions on the shoulders of the salience that had been created by earlier German attacks. He hoped that this would set up for a strong late summer offensive, then a larger one in the fall, which would provide the Allies with good positions that could be used in the coming year. On July 12th, this mindset began to trickle down to the other armies, with Patan publishing an order that read, quote, Henceforth, the army should envision the resumption of the offensive. Commanders at all echelons should prepare for this. They will focus resolutely on using simple, audacious, and rapid procedures of attack. The soldier will be trained in the same sense and his offensive spirit developed to the maximum. With the preparations for a counterattack beginning, information about possible German attacks began to trickle in. This was in the time before Friedensturm was launched, and the fact that the French knew that the German attack was coming allowed them critical time to set up for the counterstroke. After doubts went away about the possibility of the information being fake, preparations began in earnest. Troops were brought down from the north, and even Patan was more optimistic than normal about the situation. He would later write that, quote, The month's respite, which had followed the Battle of Matz, had enabled us to train and rest our divisions, and material our superiority had become undeniable. 
we had sufficient artillery and munitions. We could count on our heavy tanks, and especially our light tanks, against an adversary lacking similar weapons. Our aviation incontestably dominated that of the adversary. Some French commanders were very much ready to go, even before the Germans had attacked, and one of them was our old friend, General Mangin. He was in command of the 10th Army, which would play a pivotal role in any French attacks in the area, and he wanted to go right now. Patan was still fixated on the French actions being counterattacks, though, launched only after the Germans had attacked again, and only when the French, Americans, and British were ready to go all along the Marne salient. As we discussed last episode, the German attack would begin on July 15th, and while it would advance a few kilometers in some areas, in others it would be stopped very quickly, especially east of Rheims. However, to the south of the city, things did not go well for the defenders, with too many men being placed in the front lines close to the German artillery. This caused Patan to begin requesting that some of the troops that were set up for the counterattack be released to meet the German advance. Foch completely forbid this, adamant that the troops should be kept together for the strongest possible counterattack. So instead of breaking up these forces, other areas of the front had even more troops pulled from them, including some Americans. This was a calculated risk on the sand of Foch, making his defensive troops weaker to allow for a stronger counterattack. In this case, the gamble would pay off. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. So what precisely were these forces that were ready to make this big move? Well, they were from five French armies. Mangin in the 10th would be the primary point of attack with 16 divisions. Just to be clear, this is the same Mangin that was removed from command earlier in the war, then reinstated, then removed again, then reinstated again. His ability to keep coming back to command is impressive, and it was mostly due to his relationship with Foch, who he got along with very well. In this case, his stint in command would work out pretty well for the French armies. Two of his divisions would be American, the 1st and the 2nd, and they would be part of the French 20th Corps. 
they would be joined by an overwhelming superiority in artillery, aircraft, and tanks. There would be 500 tanks joining these attacks, the most yet seen during a single offensive. Many of these were lighter tanks, which were favored by the French, as opposed to the much heavier ones that the British had been using during the war. Overall, the Allies enjoyed a numerical superiority in pretty much every meaningful regard, and they would, have, they would make use of it along a front of 105 kilometers. Their objective would be to cut off the base of the German salient on the Marne, and to encircle any troops left inside. If they were successful, it could completely change the course of the war. When the counterattack began, it caught the Germans completely by surprise. Part of the reason for this was simple overconfidence, believing that the Allies were in such a bad position that they couldn't possibly launch these attacks. Another reason for this was the complete dominance of the skies over the front by the Allied air forces, with over a thousand aircraft being brought in for the attack. Regardless of the reason for the surprise, it would allow for significant early progress. On many areas of the front, the French and American troops captured their objectives in just a few hours, and then during the first day some units would advance as much as five miles. They would also capture thousands of prisoners along the way, with the 10th Army alone capturing 10,000 German troops. The next day it continued, although at a slower pace. The American troops joining in the attack did not get highly graded on their tactics, with one writer saying that, quote, The Americans perished in the same way that all of the parties involved in the war had perished during the first years of the war, side by side and wave after wave. At the risk of exaggeration, it can thus be said that the Army of the United States set off to battle in 1918 as if the Great War had just begun and had to discover the hard reality of trench warfare all over again. But even with less than optimal methods, they were able to keep up with the other allies pretty well. Overall, the attack was considered a huge success by the French, and a key part of that success was the German withdrawal that followed. Crown Prince Wilhelm was in command of this area of the front, and he ordered a withdrawal from the tip of the Marne salient on July 24th. However, after learning of the order, Ludendorff cancelled it. He was not just yet willing to give up ground voluntarily. It would take just a few days before he was forced to change his mind, as the Allies continued to push forward and threaten the troops within the salient. After the order was given, it would take just a week before the Germans were back on the River Anne, roughly where they'd started in this first place. This movement allowed most of their men and equipment to be properly evacuated from the salient before it was lost, and it also allowed the Germans to strengthen their defensive line, since it reduced the overall length of the front by about 45 kilometers. Before they ordered the retreat, the defense of the salient had cost the German 110,000 casualties, with 39,000 of that number being prisoners. For the French, the German retreat removed the threat from Paris, but it cost more than 95,000 French casualties along with 37,000 from their allies. A small note here, and a correction from last episode. There were actually Italian troops that participated in the Second Battle of the Marne. Last episode I said they were not involved on the Western Front, which was quite silly since I'd already done the research for this episode and this information was right here in my notes. There were several Italian divisions that would take part in the Second Battle of the Marne, with some British and American troops fighting alongside of them, and they performed quite well uh, given the opportunity. A critical piece of the story about the Second Battle of the Marne is what it did to the German mindset about the war. The Germans had just spent most of 1918 preparing for their attacks, and now they had been forced to give up most of the gains of one of those efforts. 
From a numbers perspective, this was necessary, with the numerical superiority from March having evaporated both from their losses and from the continual increase in Allied troops. So it's been quite a while since I've used a quote from A World Undone by G.J. Meyer, which I relied very heavily on in the early episodes of this podcast, but here it makes a triumphant return to give a good summary of the numerical situation at this point in time. Quote, the balance of power had shifted. In March, the Germans had had 300,000 more troops than the Allies, but between the start of Michael and the end of July, more than a million of those troops, a large portion of them the prime young men trained as stormtroops, had been killed, wounded, or captured. The British and French lost half a million men each, and the French, like the Germans, had almost no replacements. But the Americans were continuing to arrive in France at a rate of more than a quarter of a million a month, and they were going into action. End quote. One enemy that the Germans had not planned on facing would start to cause great harm to the army in the summer of 1918, and this was influenza, which would rear its ugly head several times in 1918, including in July and June. This was the beginning of what would come to be known as the Spanish Flu, a worldwide influenza epidemic that would spread around the globe and kill millions between 1918 and 1920. We will have several episodes dedicated to the epidemic later this year, but for now we need to discuss how it was affecting the German army during the summer of 1918. During June, more than 130,000 German soldiers would find themselves sick from the flu, and in July that number would balloon to 375,000. This flu came in the form of a three-day fever, generally with temperatures raising into the 103 degrees Fahrenheit or so. One thing to keep in mind here, though, is that this is not the far more dangerous and far more deadly variant of the flu that would sweep the world later. Most of the people who contracted this summer flu would recover fully after only a few days. This was good for the soldiers, but for the German army, the sheer number of men that had to be brought out of the line and cared for over these months was a serious burden, and a serious problem for an army that was trying its hardest to just try and man the front with enough people to hold the Allies back. It would also affect all of the other armies in Europe during 1918, but the Allies had far more men to spare, so it didn't really hurt them as much. Even after the Allied counterattack started, Ludendorff still had high hope for his Hagen operation that would be launched in Flanders. In fact, as soon as Friedensturm had been called off, he traveled north to meet with Crown Prince Ruprecht, who would be in command of the army group that would execute the Flanders operation. Artillery was also on its way north to participate, and the only thing that was left to do were final preparations. Discussions between Ludendorff and Ruprecht would continue while they tried to determine the best path forward for their attack. They were having some problems because the situation had decisively changed since the earlier efforts. The German army was not what it was before, and more importantly, the British defenses in Flanders were far more prepared than before previous attacks. Even though Ludendorff desperately wanted to launch this attack, as the situation in the south continued to develop, he was forced to admit that the German offensives were over. This admission was important, because it called into question everything that had come before. If the Germans could no longer attack due to numbers or fatigue or whatever, then the Germans probably needed to make some serious changes. Up to this point, their decision-making process had been driven by the fact that they wanted to hold as much territory as possible when they pushed the Allies to the negotiating table. Now it was clear that the war was not going to end. 
This caused many German commanders to question why they were holding on to all this new territory. This included Colonel Losberg, long considered the best defensive mind in the German army. At this point, he was chief of staff of the 4th Army in Flanders, and he believed that a retreat from all of the gains of 1918 was necessary in order to shorten the German defensive lines. This would allow the troops to be rested, and just as importantly, it would buy the Germans time. There was an even more radical group of generals that believed that the Germans should retreat all the way back to the lines between Antwerp and the Meuse, basically forfeiting most of their gains not just from 1918, but 1914 as well. Ludendorff initially completely ruled out these options, with the largest concern being morale. Already with the retreat from the Marne salient, there were serious discipline problems occurring in the German army, with some supply trains being targeted of armed groups of deserters, and a serious uptick in the number of Germans captured by the Allies was also a concern. There were attempts to suppress these types of actions by force, but at its core this was just an example of how far the morale of the German army had fallen during 1918. One German soldier, George Brücker, would say that at this point in the year, quote, we had nothing left to hope for. Even our last desperate hope, the hope of victory, had deserted us. Ludendorff was also considering the political dimension of a retreat. If it became clear that the German army was giving up so much territory, it's possible that there would have been a political crisis in Berlin. Both of these factors prevented the wholesale German retreat, at least for the moment. With the German offensives over, and the initiative clearly on the side of the Allies, the question was simple. What would they do next? To try and determine what that would be, Foch assembled all the Allied commanders, Haig, Patan, and Pershing, on July 24th. The goal of this meeting was to determine what the path forward looked like. There were now new inputs into these decisions when compared with their previous meetings. The front felt fluid in a way that it had not been since maybe 1914 and they had beaten the best that the Germans could throw at them, and then they threw them back, and the Americans were truly in the fight now. Foch started pushing for a huge set of coordinated offensives along the front. Haig would lead a force against Amiens, Patan would continue the attacks north across the Marne, where success was already being seen, Pershing would attack the Saint-Mihiel salient, which was present in the French line south of Verdun. Eventually, the three leaders would agree to launch these efforts. These attacks would all be launched, but they would not all be easy. With the advantages enjoyed by the Allies, the Germans still had some fight left in them, which G.J. Meyer explains in his book, A World Remade. Quote, a new pattern was emerging. Sorry as the state of the German army was, even under the most terrible circumstances, its commanders could rely on a hard core to go on fighting to devastating effect. It remained capable of inflicting hard punishment on its advancing foes, not least on the Americans, with their fatal combination of fierce bravery and inexperience. These events are where our story will go next. It will begin next episode, with two episodes covering the Allied attack at Amiens and the Black Day for the German army. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode.